Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Imperishable Seed by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, you are glorious and we get to celebrate your glory here every Sunday. And Lord, you're always speaking and your word, as we will see today, is living and active. And I pray that that's exactly what it would be inside of each and every one of us, that it may be living and active. May your word, Lord, move from our minds to our heart and to our feet as we go through this week in your wonderful name. Amen. I haven't told a joke for a while, but I couldn't leave this one alone. Ruben's not here, so he would have been laughing before I even got to it. But, but a man goes to the doctor. And the doctor says, listen, he says, I've got bad news. And he says, I've got worse news. And the guy goes, okay. He says, well, give me the bad news first. He says, you've got 24 hours to live. The guy goes, oh, struth. He says, well, what's the worst news? I forgot to ring you yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Make a joyful noise. <laughs> if you'd like to meet me in 1 Peter chapter 1, we will finish 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning and then we move on. Uh, <clears throat> we'll, we'll get back to 1 Peter uh, early next year. Uh, I'd just like to recap. Last year we looked at the, uh, the scripture. Basically, we looked at the word ransomed. And uh, Paul says, uh, Peter, sorry, says, we were ransomed. And uh, you need to underline and you need to circle and highlight the word ransomed, but it probably would pay to do the word were as well. It's an act that's already been completed. Jesus doesn't need to pay your ransom again. It's already been paid. You just have to receive it. You just have to live in it and walk in it. This is the motivation for holiness that, that Peter's appealing to. The motivation is this wonderful salvation that God has paid for for each one of us. The word ransom speaks of bringing one from, from out of the clutches or out of uh, the keeping of an enemy to rescue a, a slave or a hostage from an enemy. We had a look at the gospel message and we, we, we sometimes lose sight of the gospel message. And J.I. Packer, uh, I think, summed it up best when he said, the gospel message can be summed up in one sentence and that is, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul, who wrote that scripture, I believe in 1 Timothy 3.15, goes on to say, of whom I am the worst. So I give some grace to Paul, he hadn't quite met me by that time. This gospel we saw last week must permeate all of our lives. Rob Caffrey, have I in any way, shape or form spoken to you about what I was going to speak about this morning? It's interesting that you raised the word atmosphere this morning over communion and that's exactly what I want to speak about this morning as we come into uh, finishing off 1 Peter chapter 1. If I could sum it up in one word, it would be atmosphere. And we sometimes think that we have no control over atmosphere, but we do particularly in our own lives. I, when I was uh, planting trees in the forestry in Tasmania, we had a couple of English backpacking guys that cruised on down there and they were talking about where they had worked and they worked on a place called Melville Island. Does anyone know where that is? Just off the tip of the Northern Territory. You can only get there by a ramshackle little dinghy or something. They dodge the crocs apparently as you go across. But they were planting acacia trees on Melville Island. And I immediately began to ask questions. Why would you be planting acacia trees? They, they don't have the value that we, the trees that we were planting. We were planting blue gum nitens. Why aren't you planting, you can plant pine trees up on Melville Island, but only a certain breed of pine tree. But you can't plant blue gum nitens, and there's a good reason for that. The atmosphere and the climate does not suit them at all. 
last year at Christmas time, we went back to Tasmania and I walked into the supermarket and my, I think there's a mark on my jaw where it hit the ground when I saw the price of mangoes. Does anybody else here like mangoes? I love mangoes. Up here, they're falling off the trees everywhere. But you go to Tasmania and they're like gold. And I could, who knows that I could pick up a mango tree and it doesn't matter what condition that mango tree is in. It can be in the best of conditions. And I can take that mango tree back to Tasmania and I can prepare the soil and I can water it and I can fertilise it and who knows, it's not going to grow. Why? Because the atmosphere in Tasmania is not conducive to mangoes. Apples, yes. Weird people, yes. Uh, my son and I fish quite regularly, and if you read the newsletters, you'll pick up on that. <laughs> I'm now regretting in starting that. <laughs> but, but we have said to each other many times, we, uh, trout in Tasmania are insect feeders. And, uh, you know, you would always be waiting for the insects to hit the water. We lived and our, and our lives were conducted by the cycle of the mayfly. You know, we, we eagerly waited for the first hatchings. We eagerly sought out the right conditions for the mayfly to hatch. And then we get up here and there's bugs on the water everywhere. And when I said to Reuben, I said, this would be a great place for trout, but there's a problem. Brown trout can't exist in water above the temperature of 24 degrees. The atmosphere and the climate up here is no good for trout. For the first few months, it's not much good for Tasmanians either, the climate up here, I've got to tell you. <laughs> the problem isn't with the trout, and the problem isn't with the mangrove tree. The problem is with the atmosphere. And there's certain atmospheric conditions that are conducive for growth. And here are at the Rock Church, but also in our own personal lives, my vision is, you know what, I can't make spiritual growth happen. I can't do that. And we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at how that happens and why that happens today. But I I can't do that. But what I can do and what we can all do together is we can create an atmosphere and an environment that is conducive for spiritual growth. You might be sitting here this morning and saying, you know what, Pastor, I'm tired of going around and around the mulberry bush. I'm, I'm tired of like, going around the mountain in the wilderness like the Israelites. I, I, I want to know what it is. H- how do I grow closer to God? Or what kind of atmospheric conditions uh, are conducive for me to grow spiritually? Well, I'd like to help you answer that question today because Peter is going to give us that answer. If you'd like to turn in uh, Peter 1 verse 22, we'll start there and we'll work our way through what he has to say. First off, he says, having purified your souls. Now Peter's going to say, you know what? You guys have got a part to play in this. Holiness is all about who it is that we live close to. We looked at that. Holiness is less about what you don't do anymore because that's an organic result of who it is that you live close to. You pursue God long enough, you will turn around and find that you've left all those things behind. But we see that purifying your souls, to purify means to to cleanse from defilement. And Peter's saying now, you guys have got a part to play in this. Our part is to maintain the purification that God gives us. When Peter references our souls, friends, this is the message of the New Testament. He's talking about our hearts. And he's not talking about that physical thing that pumps blood 
mine a little bit slower than others, but it's not talking about the physical thing that pumps blood. It's talking about our inward attitudes. It's talking about the motives. It's talking about our affections and our desires. What is it that drives you? It's talking about our engine room. What happens on the outside? We need to understand it's, it's like a ship. You know, you, you, you turn up and watch these huge, great big ships navigating the ocean. And what you don't understand is everything on the outside, that big ship, is controlled by an engine on the inside. It's got an engine room. And that's like us as well. Our engine room is like our affections. Who is is it that that captivates all of our affections and the message of the new testament takes it from the external to the internal what did jesus say uh, now adultery uh, isn't about whether you've done it or not no 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 right back here we see the problem is in your heart jesus spoke more about the heart Jesus spoke more about where our treasure and our affections lie. Jesus takes it. Jesus says, you know what? It's not really about tithing anymore. Jesus doesn't set amounts. Now he's talking about give. (laughs) Be generous. So Jesus takes it a completely different level. And it's all about our hearts. It's about purifying our souls. I love what Paul says to the Philippians. You know, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then he goes on to say, for it's God who works in us. <laughs> so what's Paul saying? Work out what God works in. And that's what Peter's saying here, having purified your souls. How do we, how do we purify our souls? Well, Peter's not going to leave us dangling. How is it that we can live a life purifying our souls? By obedience to the truth. obedience, uh, I can't find any better analogy in the Greek, so please excuse this one. There was was a missionary that uh, was uh, ministering in a faraway tribe, and he's trying to translate and work uh, with translation, and translating the Bible and working with them in English, and he's trying to find a word for obedience, and he couldn't find it. He's trying to describe to them, how is it, what's what's your saying for obedience? And he's trying, they couldn't get it. And then one day he's sitting... Uh, on a chair overlooking the village and a guy's walking through the street and he whistles and his dog comes. And immediately, it sounds like a bad analogy, but immediately he says, that's what I mean. You know, we don't talk about obedience enough in churches. We think that God's got to do all the work and mop up behind us all the time. And we fail to realise that God expects us to be obedient uh, I, I remember when I was in Tasmania, I had many Jack Russells. Jack Russells are English dogs, and who knows that everything from England is disobedient. <laughs> but you're from Britain, brother, so well. <laughs> but but I, I had many Jack Russells, and can I tell you, if you're in the market for buying a Jack Russell, they are a naughty, naughty, naughty little dog. <laughs> they somehow snap out of it by the time they're about 15. But until then, they're naughty. And, and in comparison, uh, uh, Reuben still has his Jack Russell, who's calmed down a little bit. But in comparison, I, I brought a dog, Rocco, a big slobbering mess of a doofusy looking thing from the pound. And uh, he was just awesome. He was big, huge, but just slobbered all over everything. And he was the most obedient dog I've ever had. I mean, I could walk down the street with Rocco, German Shepherd Cross, no lead. And he would be wandering out in front of me on the pathway and on the nature strips and everything like that. And if I saw somebody else with a dog, I could just click my finger and Rocco would come straight around here and he would walk beside me until the person passed and then he would go back about his business. I never had to say a word, 
because he was obedient. And that's the analogy. It's like God says, you guys have actually got to do what I say. I say these things for a reason. I base our lives on the word of God, having purified our souls by obedience to the truth. Uh, <clears throat> who, knows, uh, who knows that we've all had toddlers, have we not? In church, most of us here that have had toddlers in church will immediately know what I'm talking about. You get up Sunday morning, you put, the, you put the kids in the best clothes, ready for church, you get them all dressed up, it's pouring with rain outside, and, and who knows that without some kind of restraint, they're going to run outside and jump in the puddles, get themselves all dirty, and, and, and it's kind of the same. When God says we need to be obedient to the truth, the truth is absolutely his word and, and the Bible here, but what that means is, listen, I'm giving you the garments, that's what God does, he He gives us garments. He gives us the white garments and and, and the blood of Jesus will absolutely remove the stains from our garments. But we have a responsibility to keep out of the mud. It's a commitment to living according to God's word. You know, when Jesus was tempted by the enemy, he displayed what this looks like. And we think that what we need to do is memorise more scripture. We think what we need to do is be able to reel off scriptures like bullets, you know, like arrows, so to speak, and that'll fix everything. That's, that's not what's happening in the temptation of Jesus. What he is answering to the enemy is, he is vocalising an inward commitment. I have made a commitment that my life is completely orientated according to the word of God. That's what Jesus is vocalising. What he's saying is merely... Uh, uh, the fruit of an inward commitment. A.W. Tozer, if you haven't read any A.W. Tozer books, you need to find a few because they are awesome. He says, the word of God well understood and religiously obeyed is the shortest route to spiritual perfection. Here's some of the things we're now talking about when it comes to atmosphere, obedience to the truth. The word of God well understood and religiously obeyed is the shortest route to spiritual perfection. And we must not select a few favourite passages. Don't we all do that? You know, what's pop- getting up and preaching about the love of God is popular. Oh, people will hear about that all day long. A few favourite passages to the exclusion of others. Nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. Thank you, Aidan Tozer. Now let's move on to what I would like to say is another uh, absolute uh, paramount importance to the atmosphere of this church atmosphere of the church in general and the atmosphere of our lives. Let's have a look at what Peter has to say. He says, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Isn't it? Here we go again, pastor. Every time you open a book in the New Testament, we come across this. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that it doesn't matter what book in the New Testament you open, you will come across this line. Some take it a little bit further than others. Read the epistle of John. How can one of you say that you love God and hate your brother? (laughs) John says, that's an oxymoron, friends. Loving one another is is something that we need to grasp when it comes to Christian love. The agapeo kind of love, you can see it and it's it's an act. Uh, The love that we are called to love one another with has less to do about what you feel and more about what you do. Well, I would love that person if I felt like it. Well, you're not going to feel like it. (laughs) 
well, I would love that person if they just did this, this. I, I, I want to ask everybody a question here. Uh, how many of us got our life together before Jesus decided that he would come and die for us? In fact, as we saw last week, for God so loved the world, while we still hated him, while we were still rebelling against him, while we still wanted our own way, uh, what did God do? He gave us his son. He says, here's all I've got. And in this way, says the word of God, he showed us his love. If we love one another, we will see that we love one another. If we, I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be blunt because I've got to learn this as much as everybody else does. I know it would be much easier to love if it was a lot nicer, but you know Jesus wasn't nice, by the way. Jesus was not nice. (laughs) Read the Gospels. Particularly if you were a Pharisee, he wasn't overly nice. (laughs) Peter says here we we should love one another earnestly. We should do it zealously and from a pure heart and that absolutely drives the finger onto the motives. And the motives is that we just want the betterment for everybody else. You know what love looks like? Love looks like you lay down your agendas. Love looks like you lay down your plans. And love looks like you lay down your interests for the betterment of somebody else. It's so important that Jesus said that this is how people will know that you're my disciples. They won't know that you're my disciples because you read the word a lot. They won't know you're my disciples because you go to church. They won't know you're my disciples because your mum and dad went to church. They will know that you're my disciples because you love one another. How do we become more loving? Uh, I've used this analogy before and I love it. Uh, when I was at the Salvation Army, there was a, a guy there, a weird kooky kind of guy that was a science teacher. He used to do these little demonstrations up the front for the children. And he brought up a magnet and two nails one Sunday. And he, he took one nail and he touched the other and nothing happened and then he said now if I take this magnet and the nail and and this nail spends a lot of time with the magnet something miraculous happened he then took that nail and he was able to pick up the other nail the magnetism had transferred from the magnet to the nail just by proximity and friends can I tell you if you are spending time with the most loving person in the universe it is going to magnetize onto you you can't spend time with him and not come away different. That's why we put a value on the presence of God. Love is absolutely a verb. It's less about what you feel and more about what you do. I wonder, and it's a challenge to my own self, I wonder if we prayed about people more than we spoke about them, whether there would be a difference. I wonder concerning the problems and the circumstances in our life, I wonder if we prayed about those more than we spoke about them, whether they'd be just as big a problem. I'm not sure that they would be. I say this nearly every time we talk about love and I'm going to say it again. If, if you think that all you have to do is for God to take somebody out of your life and it'll be a lot easier to love, can I tell you that if that person ever goes out of your life, <laughs> uh, somebody else exactly the same is going to come in. Because the exam room of God looks like you will pass this test before we move on. <laughs> God's got a sense of humour too. God says, I've got some bad news and some worse news. <clears throat> no, it's only good news. 
Peter goes on and he says, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Let's go to verse 22. Since you have been born again, and and this is where I want to come to today as we talk about an important word. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Being born again is what Jesus described to Nicodemus. He said, you must be born from above. Nicodemus is looking for a womb to clamber into, the most spiritual person, apparently in brackets, the most spiritual person of that day. A leader of the Jews is going, I don't get this. I don't understand spiritual renewal. And can I tell you, you will not remove the mysterious from this. Put your calculators away. There's no methodology for this one. Except this. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. But how does that happen? I don't know. I don't know. It's the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it wishes. That's the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. The wind blows wherever he wishes. We don't tell him what to do. We don't tell him how to operate. He blows where he wishes. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you you don't know where the wind comes from and you don't know where it's going. But in between, you'll feel its effects. You don't have any control over it. You can't work out the Holy Spirit, but you will know his effects when he touches your heart and he touches your life. Uh, Interesting uh, what Peter says, uh, we have been born of an imperishable seed and we have an imperishable inheritance that we have been called to, an imperishable salvation that we have been provided for us and we have an imperishable seed. And this is basically speaking of what we are born of. We are born of perishable seed in the physical. We will... We will certainly pass away in the physical. But what Peter is saying is the seed that you were born of here is an imperishable seed. And I want to grab hold of that word seed because the the way that Peter uses this word is used nowhere else like this in the New Testament. The Greek word here is spora and it speaks of the seed that has been sown. Isn't it interesting when we take seed, you can hold, I can hold a mango tree seed in my hand right now. And it's tiny. Who knows that mango trees are reasonably big? And that seed, is, that, that seed is tiny. But it has all the DNA and all the potential in it for the hugest of mango trees and multiple, multiple amounts of mangoes. And can I tell you that there has been a seed planted in each and every single person in here. If Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, I want you to know that you have been... There is a seed inside of you that has all the potential in the universe... And that seed will have an effect depending on the atmosphere. You don't have to turn there. I want to read to you a parable from Mark chapter 4. Jesus spoke about seed quite a lot. And if you want to hear another sermon about seed and heart conditions, then uh, look up on YouTube for Change Your Harvest. I preached on that not so long ago when Jesus gave us the parable of the sower and the different heart conditions that we find the seed reaching. But, you know, in Mark 4, verse 26, he begins a parable and he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. The kingdom of God. I'll read the whole parable first. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. Listen to this. He knows not how. Oh. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, that's a beautiful word, ripe. 
We're all ripening. That's what God's trying to do here. He's trying to ripen every person in this room. He's trying to ripen you for the time that you stand before him in eternity. He wants us to carry fruit into eternity. So that when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And the kingdom of God that Jesus speaks about is God's dominion and God's reign and God's rule. God's kingdom cannot be measured geographically. It is measured in the hearts and lives of people. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we should be praying for God's kingdom to come as Jesus taught us in our own lives as well as in those that are not, uh, do not know Jesus. But God's kingdom is, it knows no earthly boundaries but our hearts and Jesus says it's as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So a man goes about scattering seed and, and what happens is he, <clears throat> the man goes about his business because he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and he knows not how. Who knows that this is the message of the Bible. This is the message of the Bible in so many respects because what's happening here is the farmer says, you know what, I've planted the seed, I've prepared the soil, I've watered it, I've fertilised it, I've done everything I can and who knows, there's no more that farmer can do. And so much of the Christian life is like that. So much of the Christian life, you will find yourself saying, Lord, I've done all that I can. And now I'm fully reliant on you. And he will continuously bring you to that point. If you're sitting here this morning going, you know what, this Christian life is pretty rosy. I've got it. Put your seatbelt on. Put your seatbelts on. It's God's job to make us uncomfortable. But the seed grows and he knows not how. There's the mysterious. But can you see that uh, we have control over the atmosphere? And I want to give you what that atmosphere is before we leave here today. How can we change our atmosphere? How can we increase an atmosphere? How can we have an atmosphere in our lives that is conducive for this seed with all the potential in the universe to grow? We'll come to that. You know, the soil, it cannot sow and it cannot reap, but it can receive and nurture the seed. And that's the job of the heart. He knows not how, we know not how. Remember the words of Paul when he says, I've planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. In other words, we've done everything we can. Jesus finishes with the blade, the ear and the full grain and here we see the levels of maturity that this seed, it's, it's a process of time and it's all conducive to atmosphere. Let's come back to 1 Peter. So Peter says, very important word coming up, he says, you are born again, not of perishable seed. Born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through. Underline that word through. Because the word through here speaks by the means of. You are born again by the means of the word of God. That's what it says. Through the living and abiding word of God. The atmosphere, make no mistakes, the atmosphere in our lives that, that absolutely produces and is conducive for growth is an atmosphere of the word of God. Those same words from the very same mouth are the same words that created the universe. What do you think they could do in your life? We have a problem, I feel, and it's endemic amongst some places and some churches. We have Christians that are starving. We have Christians that are malnourished. Why? Jesus said, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are starving because there is no word in our lives. The, the, the seed that is planted in our lives has all the potential and it has all the, the life giving in it. It's contained in this seed, but there's a problem. It's lying dormant because the atmosphere is not good. An atmosphere of procrastination, an atmosphere of listening to every other voice outside of this room. I need to, I need to find out what social media tells me about myself. I, when somebody unfriends us on Facebook, it's a catastrophe. <laughs> Unfriend me by all means. Through the living and abiding word of God, the writer to the Hebrews, and we don't really know who it was, but the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12 says that the word of God is living and it is active. It's an organism. It's living and it's active. Some uh, translations translate that powerful, but active is the correct translation of that word. It is living and it is active. The question I want to ask is, is the word of God active in your life? James says that a man that reads this book, reads these words and goes away and doesn't do them is like a man that looks in the mirror and goes away and forgets what he looks like. I would like to forget what I look like after I've looked in the mirror, but I don't particularly want to do that spiritually. What does that look like? Well, this is what God has said concerning how we conduct our lives, our marriages, how we raise our children. We have to allow the word of God to form our worldview. Why do we hold marriage between a man and a woman? Because that's how God designed it. That's how we form and base our lives. Our inner conviction must be our lives are governed by the word of God. This word is living and it has an effect in people's lives. It's also an abiding word, says Peter. It rests, it remains, it endures. He's going to go on and say, before he finishes, that the word of the Lord remains forever. He will quote from Isaiah chapter 40. You might be sitting here this morning and you might be saying, what is so special about this book? You might be saying, you're asking me to base my whole life on this book. Well, I want to know whether or not it is reliable. Good question. I want to, I want to briefly touch on some of the things that we can look at. Firstly, the evidence to the reliability of the Bible is inside of its own documentation. There are thousands of manuscripts that have been faithfully preserved that provide evidence for historical consistency of the Scriptures. Not one archaeological find has in any way disproved any part of the Bible. In fact, it is currently doing the reverse. The Old and New Testament facts can and have been traced archaeologically. So when we, uh, the places, the cities, the people that are named in the Gospels actually lived and they were there. We can trace them. Uh, another reason that we can find reliability uh, in, in this book here is the current archaeological sites and excavations are providing strong evidence of the reliability of the Bible. Previously not thought to be the case. Such as, I'm going to give you one example, such as the city of Jericho. And the Hittites. They said that the Hittites were a myth. These people never existed. And now they have excavated the city of Jericho and they find that it all lines up with the Bible. Who would have thought? Here's the big one. And we, we, we're not going to leave this one alone as a church. We're going to keep touching on this one. Uh, the life of Jesus. 
What you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John actually happened. Jesus, uh, there are scholars, historical scholars today that say if you say, and they are not Christians, and they say if you say that Jesus was not a person of history, it's absurd. They all say Jesus was absolutely a man of history. They all say, whether they're Christian, non-Christian or not, that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. And they all say, here's the big one, the tomb was empty. What you do with that evidence is up to you. But the evidence is there. And what we find written of Jesus in this Bible here, in these pages lines up exactly with history. Even the history that is written by Roman historians and Jewish historians. Remember the Jews were not overly fantastic with Jesus. Some of them still aren't. Here's a big one that speaks of the supernatural and that's fulfilled prophecies. You can't get away from this one. There are hundreds and even thousands of prophecies relating to Israel and the person of Jesus Christ that are accurately predicted and fulfilled and recorded in history inside of these pages. To the person of Jesus Christ, home run prophecies, 40 alone, just to the person of Jesus Christ, found in Scripture. Here's the big one that I find. There are today, and history will tell us, that there are billions of people that will put their hand up and say there is something powerful about this book. We are talking people of famous stature. We are talking people from wealthy backgrounds and poor backgrounds. It doesn't matter what social class or anything, they will put their hand up and say there is power in these pages. This book was written by 40 different men from 13 different countries and across three different continents. It was written by doctors, fishermen, kings, shepherds and soldiers over a period of some 1,600 years. And yet the whole of this Bible from one point to the other tells the one story of the one hero which points to the fact that it actually in fact has one author. I want to read you an excerpt from, uh, it's called The Old Scroll. And I'm, I'm going to read it out because I want it to be accurate. Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and can I tell you, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was a home run for Christians and the reliability of Scripture. But before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts dated to AD 900. The Dead Sea Scrolls, in startling agreement with the Masoretic text, dated to about 150 BC. But now archaeologists have discovered a pair of tiny silver scrolls that date back to 600 BC. While digging at the site of a 5th century church in Jerusalem, researchers found a Roman legionnaire's cemetery. Exploring still deeper, they found a small burial cave containing the scrolls. Very carefully, less than a hundredth of an inch at a time, the scrolls were unrolled. On each of them appeared an excerpt from the Book of Numbers, one of the first five books of the Bible, from the Book of Numbers that included the word Jehovah, the one God. And these scrolls date back to the days before the exile to Babylon. That's ages. Earlier than liberal scholars supposed that the Pentateuch had even been written, the Bible has been wonderfully and accurately preserved. Copies of portions of the New Testament dating to within 50 years of the original manuscripts have been found and they coincide with what we have today. It finishes with the Bible can be trusted as the inspired, inerrant word of God. This is God's word speaking to us. 
and it is the atmospheric condition that makes the difference in people's lives. If you want to grow spiritually, you are going to have to get a hold of the Word of God, get into life groups, get into uh, open up devotionals, go to church. Uh, this, is, this is not about Sundays, and it's not just about life group. It's about every single day. I want to conclude with the story of a man that did change an atmosphere. Have a listen to this. It is titled Mutiny on the Bounty. In 1789, a group of mutineers put their officers on a longboat. They took control of the HMS Bounty and they sailed to Tahiti to enjoy a comfortable life. Fearing punishment, some of them, along with several Polynesians, later moved to uninhabited Pitcairn Island and they burned the ship so there would be no evidence. Despite the South Pacific paradise-like setting, sexual immorality, jealousy, anger, alcohol and disease took their toll until there was only one Englishman, ten women and many children left. The remaining Englishman was a man by the name of Alexander Smith. And Alexander Smith discovered a Bible in the ship's goods and he thankfully, uh, due to the, the next to last man, had been taught to read before he died. Smith studied the word, decided that it held the answer to the community's problems and initiated Sunday worship and daily prayer times for the remaining people. In 1808, less than 20 years after they landed on this island, an American ship happening upon the island was surprised to discover a thriving group of 35 English-speaking Christians. Another example is of Angola Prison. Has anybody here heard of Angola Prison in the south of America? Angola Prison, when uh, formerly when you were checked into Angola Prison, you were checked in <clears throat> with your clothes and a blade to protect yourself. It was the bloodiest prison in America. They couldn't control the gang warfare and everything. There was a man by the name of Burl Kane who in his first year as warden of Angola Prison was witness to a man that was executed on death row. And he's a Baptist man, a Southern Baptist man. And he said to himself, this man has passed into eternity and I have done nothing to address his soul. They asked him to take the full-time job as warden. And he says, I'll tell you what, he says, I'll take the job as full-time warden as long as you let me do it my way. And they said, well, okay, what's your way? So he changed things. And now when you were booked into Angola prison, you were booked in with your clothes and a Bible. That, That is the change he made. He put a Bible in every cell. He checked every inmate in with a Bible. He opened up Sunday morning services. No one attended them for a period of time. Now at Angola Prison, it's standing room only on Sunday mornings. They have seminaries where they try to cram 80 inmates at a time into there. They have uh, um, globally renowned speakers, Ravi Zacharias, John Piper, that go and teach and speak at the seminary. What is happening in Angola prison is nothing short of a miraculous supernatural revival or because one man made a decision, we're going to change the atmosphere here. Put away your blades and open up your Bibles. And I listened uh, to the testimony of one prisoner. Ravi Zacharias was talking to this guy and he says, how do you feel about the fact that you will never leave this place? Angola prison, some 90% of the inmates will never, never see the light of day again. 
and he says to Ravi Zacharias, these are beautiful words, friends. He says, don't, he says, he says, don't pray for me, Ravi. He says, pray for my family. He says, I'm inside this prison here, he says, and I'm as free as I'll ever be. He says, but my family's outside these doors. He says, and they don't, they, he says, they think they're free, but he says, they're in greater bondage than I ever will be. If you're sitting here this morning and saying, you know what, I wouldn't mind changing the atmosphere in my life. Can I tell you, it's possible. If you're sitting here this morning saying, I wouldn't mind a different atmosphere in church, it's possible. Our commitment as an eldership and a leadership in this church is that the word of God will be preached, the word of God will be promoted, the word of God will be taught at our, in, in Kids Rock, life group, the whole lot. Because it is an atmosphere that is conducive to growth. And Peter says we all have this imperishable seed placed inside of us with all the potential in the universe. My challenge to everybody in this room is don't let it lay dormant in your life. Grab hold of the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that for each and every one of us, Lord, that you would help us change the atmosphere in our lives. Lord, help us to change the atmosphere in this church, but help us to change the atmosphere in Brisbane. Help us to change the atmosphere in our workplaces. I pray, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us to work out what it is that you work in. And we look to you, Lord, because you are the supernatural God. Lord, I pray that your word would reach our hearts and our feet in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.